Well, if you've read your bulletin this morning, you uh, are probably asking me to, or expecting me to tell you to turn to Matthew chapter 1. However, uh, we're going to do that in this afternoon's service. So I'm going to actually ask you to turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 14 this morning. So I'm changing things up a little bit. But we have been studying on Sunday nights, if you're not... uh, usually here on Sunday night, you may not be aware, but we've been studying the book of Kings. So we're in 1 Kings chapter 14, so we're going to continue there and uh, working our way through the book of Kings. But we've been talking about uh, King Jeroboam, who has taken over uh, the northern kingdom, the ten tribes of northern Israel, and has caused a lot of trouble Uh, And we're going to see today how uh, that's going to be coming to an end. But uh, before we start reading, I wanted to uh, go ahead and pray, and then we'll dive into those details uh, about Jeroboam and what happens here. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given us your word. We like to read encouraging things that are positive and helpful for us to Uh, feel better and uh, look forward with joy to uh, certain things and the scriptures are certainly full of those things but sometimes there are also hard things things that are harsh messages but yet uh, we know we need that too and uh, we thank you that you do tell us hard things so that we know the truth so that we understand the seriousness of sin and uh, it's also helpful, as, as you know well, uh, but uh, it's helpful for us to reflect upon the seriousness of sin, uh, which makes uh, the picture of Christmas and, and uh, salvation we have in Christ even more precious when we understand how serious and harsh sin is and its consequences. Help us today, Father, as we look at this to learn from someone else's wrong. That's the best way for us to learn things that are wrong. Help us, Father, to learn vicariously, not having to experience these things ourselves by making the same foolish choices. Help us to recognize the danger of foolish choices and to turn from them and and therefore learn from what we see here about Jeroboam and all of his foolish choices. Guide us as we study this this morning father it's a bit heavy we pray for your grace and strength and yet father if there's someone in uh, a similar state who's been resisting and and fighting or trying to cover up i pray that you'd expose that help them to understand the truth to turn from their sin to trust in christ while there is still time and we ask these things in jesus name amen so as I mentioned, we've been studying First Kings, uh, the book of First Kings, and we started off with a lot of conversation about Solomon and his wisdom and how he built the temple and how great and wonderful that was. But the last few lessons in First Kings, we've been talking about how uh, the kingdom was divided because essentially Solomon disobeyed and uh, therefore the Lord uh, split the kingdom and he gave ten tribes to Jeroboam. So we read about that in the end of chapter 11, beginning chapter 12, how the kingdom is divided, and they become the northern and southern kingdom. And Jeroboam is the king 
that God had appointed for the northern kingdom. And yet, God had made promises to Jeroboam, saying, if you will obey me, you will follow me like David did, I will give you the kingdom. I will preserve this for you and your descendants for a long time. He does acknowledge that ultimately, he will eventually give it back to David, but that will be uh, a long time if Jeroboam will choose to obey. But we read in uh, chapter 13 especially how Jeroboam foolishly chose to try to preserve the kingdom for himself, rejecting the word of God and his promise that if he'll obey, that he would be able to remain the king. Instead, he got worried and decided to go to his own measures to preserve the power that he has in the kingdom himself by essentially creating a false religion. So Jeroboam set up calf worship in two different places in the northern kingdom, in Bethel and in Dan. And we also saw in chapter 13 how a prophet was sent from God to warn Jeroboam that he is uh, sinning, going the wrong way, and God's going to judge. And, and yet uh, Jeroboam persisted in his wicked ways. He refused to repent. He continued on in what he was doing. So we're going to see in 1 Kings 14 how this is going to catch up to Jeroboam. And God is going to speak to what is going to happen to Jeroboam and his household. So we see here the promised destruction of the disobedient. So that's Jeroboam and Israel. We'll also see how God has a word for Israel as well. But let's read verses 1 through 5 to get us started this morning. It says, At that time Abijah, the son of Jeroboam, became sick. Jeroboam said to his wife, Arise now and disguise yourself so that they will not know that you are the wife of Jeroboam, and go to Shiloh. Behold, Ahijah the prophet is there, who spoke concerning me, that I would be king over this people. Take ten loaves with you, some cakes, and a jar of honey, and go to him. He will tell you what will happen to this boy. Jeroboam's wife did so, and arose, and went to Shiloh, and came to the house of Ahijah. Now Ahijah could not see, for his eyes were dim because of his age, now the Lord had said to Ahijah, Behold, the wife of Jeroboam is coming to inquire of you concerning her son, for he is sick. He shall say thus and thus, or you shall say thus and thus to her, for it will be when she arrives that she will pretend to be another woman. So let's notice, first of all, that we're going to see here that uh, Jeroboam and his wife essentially are deceptively seeking. Uh, God or seeking the word of God here and they come up with then this plan of deception look at verses 1 through 3 we see how Abijah that's the son of Jeroboam was sick so Jeroboam had a son who was sick they're concerned about him obviously they've exhausted their medical resources and and opportunities at that time they don't feel they can do anything so they're worried what's going to happen with the boy so they come up with a plan. They want a prophetic answer. They essentially want a word from God. So what does Jeroboam do? Jeroboam does what any good man who's dealing with a tough situation does. He decides to send his wife. He sends his wife to do this job. Now, 
Why might Jeroboam be doing that? What, what, what's he thinking? Well, Jeroboam has clearly been a leader in establishing this false religion. So he knows the Lord isn't pleased with him. And if you were here on Sunday night last week when we talked about this, you know what happened in that story was uh, the prophet came and, and preached and, and the message that God gave him and, and said uh, the altar was going to be split in two, the ashes are going to be poured out, and eventually a son of David was going to burn the bones of the priests that offer sacrifices there on that altar, desecrating it, which was a clear indication that God was not pleased with their false worship and was going to judge them. And Jeroboam's response was he reached out his finger and pointed at the prophet and said, seize him. Well, in the process, his hand dried up and he couldn't recall it back to him. So he asked the prophet to appeal to the Lord for his hand, which the prophet did, and he was healed. Again, Jeroboam, knowing he couldn't pray and expect God to answer him, but he could talk to the prophet, and the prophet could pray on his behalf, and God would listen to the prophet, which happened in that case. So perhaps it's a similar thinking here that God's not going to listen to me, but um, his prophet may be able to give me a good word, and so I'll send my wife. What, what a manly uh, response, right? But he's trying to be, as Jeroboam is, deceptive he is being deceptive he is not being uh, forthright or honest he is trying to be deceptive so he decides to send his wife hoping that uh, even she can disguise herself and not be recognized it tells us that uh, he tells her in verse 2 disguise yourself so they not know you're the wife of Jeroboam so perhaps perhaps his intention in hiding her identity is to protect her from the townspeople. He has, after all, been establishing and promoting this false religion. So if he is seen going to a prophet of the Lord, that may undermine his plan for uh, promoting this false religion. So that's possible, though it seems perhaps more likely he's actually trying to protect the identity from the prophet himself, which is absolutely foolish as if God doesn't know, right? But he wants to go to this prophet who he points out is Ahijah. And if you remember back to 1 Kings 11, Ahijah is the prophet that God sent to tell Jeroboam that he was going to get the 10 tribes of the north. And that happened. So Jeroboam's had a good experience with this prophet. He's the one that told him about the ten prophets, and that's happened. So perhaps he's thinking, this prophet likes me, and maybe I can get a good word from him. He clearly knows what's going to happen in the future because he told me about the ten, ten tribes, and that indeed is what happened. So he decides to send his wife to this prophet, whom he's confident will be able to tell them what's going on. Notice he also sends gifts, verse 3. Take ten loaves with you, some cakes, and a jar of honey, and go to him. Now, what do you think about that gift? I, I guess I didn't think about it too much. But what does this gift signify? It was a standard practice in that day. I mean, we even see this in the book of Samuel. Uh, when Saul is going to go to Samuel, his servant says, we, we, we can't go without taking a gift. We need to take a gift to the prophet, right? Um, that was a standard practice to do that kind of thing. But... Is this gift signifying 
the gift of a king? Or is this signifying more of a gift of a peasant? I think the indication it's more of a gift of a peasant, someone who is a lowly person. Again, I think it is just another way that he is keeping with the disguise that he's using to try and uh, fool the prophet and hide his identity. He wants to remain anonymous. He wants to have his anonymity. So we see, though, he is confident. Verse 3, look, he says at the end, he will tell you what will happen to the boy. He's confident they will get the answer. So we have Jeroboam, though, going about it in a secret way, trying to hide and deceptively seeking a word from the Lord. Do you think that's going to go well? <laughs> uh, that's not going to go well. Even if you don't know the story, it makes sense. That is not going to go well. God knows. And God is the God of truth. He is not pleased with deception and lies and trying to be tricked. God will have no part in that. In fact, notice how he prepares the prophet. He prepares the prophet for the coming of Jeroboam's wife. Look at verse 4 and 5. Jeroboam's wife did so and arose and went to Shiloh and came to the house of Ahijah. Now, uh, Ahijah, what, what's his current state? It says he could not see, for his eyes were dim because of his age. Now, we don't know if Jeroboam knew that. Um, perhaps if he did, he might even think his chances are even better. Not only is she disguised, he can't even see her anyway. So surely he's not going to know who she is. But look at verse 5. Now the Lord had said to Ahijah, Behold, the wife of Jeroboam is coming to inquire of you concerning their son, for he is sick. You shall say thus and thus to her, for it will be when she arrives that she will pretend to be another woman. So we see the Lord has given Ahijah, his prophet, a message. He has explained who is coming and how she's going to come and why she is coming. So God has made this prophet completely prepared for her arrival and has already given him the message to say when she arrives. And essentially what's going to happen, as we'll see in the next few verses, she doesn't even get a chance to say a thing because the prophet is ready. God is not fooled with deception. Just, just to think at a, at a human plane, for example, many of you are parents or grandparents at this stage. Have you ever had a situation where your children, whether playfully or seriously, tried to deceive you, tried to make you think something wasn't the way it was? You, you remember those kinds of situations? Wasn't it incredibly easy to see through that? Children don't understand the intelligence and experience and all the ways you can know things, right, as parents. This is uh, an example where someone's trying to pull one over on God. How much more foolish. And someone who's had a history of disobedience in his life is going to expect a good word from God, trying to get it deceptively on top of that? Absolute foolishness. But I think it shows a few things that we should understand about human nature that are very helpful for us to think about. Number one, 
In times of desperation, even people who reject God have moments where they recognize they need God. We as human beings are wired to need God. And there is a time when people go through in times of desperation where they recognize they need God. But notice how the sinful logic of people in these kinds of situations doesn't make sense. As if he can hide this from God. As if God will be pleased with this kind of approach. See, when we reject God's word, we do strange and inconsistent things. Illogical behavior. Um, But I think it also shows when you choose a life of deception, you don't just get to flip that switch on and off. It's just a part of who you are, and that's what's true of Jeroboam. He is a deceiver. He is one is leading people in false religion, and deception is what he does. And let that be a serious warning to all of us that choosing to be deceptive is something that corrupts us in the process. It's not just something we turn on or turn off. Jeroboam was a liar, a deceiver, and that's just part of what he does. Even when it doesn't make sense, it's not a good idea. He can't just flip it off. It's who he is. And we can't fool God. Look look how we see here. The destruction now is foretold by the word of the Lord uh, in this next section. Look at uh, verses 6 through 9 with me, where it says, When Ahijah heard the sound of her feet coming in the doorway, he said, Come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why do you pretend to be another woman? For I am sent to you with a harsh message. Go say to Jeroboam, thus says the Lord God of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people and made you leader over my people, Israel, and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you, yet you have not been like my servant David, who kept my commandments and who followed me with all his heart to do only that which was right in my sight. You also have done more evil than all who were before you and have gone and made for yourself other gods and molten images to provoke me to anger and have cast me behind your back. So we see here that God rebukes the deceivers. He rebukes uh, Jeroboam's wife. As soon as her feet are heard, he says, come in, wife of Jeroboam. He knows he's not fooled. He is prepared. Come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why do you pretend to be another woman, he says. Her identity is known. Her, uh, she is questioned why she is pretending. The, the implication is he's inviting her to agree on how foolish this plan was. It's obvious. It's foolishness. And he warns her. He gives her preparation that this is a hard message And it is a message for her to take back to Jeroboam. And in this message, we see in verses uh, 7 through 9, the reasons for the judgment that is going to be pronounced later. So he says at the beginning of verse, uh, or in the middle of verse 7 there, after he says, go to Jeroboam, he says, because. So he's explaining the why. Why is God upset with Jeroboam and going to judge him? Well, First of all, the Lord exalted Jeroboam. The Lord exalted Jeroboam. Why did he uh, get upset? Because he exalted Jeroboam. He made him leader over his people. He gave him ten tribes from the south. And yet Jeroboam disobeyed. And And he explains this saying, first of all, this was a contrast to David. If you 
If you uh, know much about the book of the Kings, what you see throughout the book of the Kings is that repeatedly the contrast or comparison is made to David. David is the human standard on a good king, and essentially all of them, including Solomon, who um, was the best, essentially fall short. There are a few on the south side that do, uh, do very well and are compared positively to David, but... Jeroboam and all the kings of the north fail. They are disobedient and do not keep God's commandments. He says, David kept my commandments, you did not. David followed me wholeheartedly, you did not. David strove to do what's right in my sight, you did not. And he also says he was comparatively the worst. How is this for a statement? You are the worst that's ever been before you. What a condemnation. He has been so horrible that he is the worst one of all the kings that have come before him. And he says, you have provoked me to jealousy. You've provoked me. The idea of this word provoking here is like we see with Panina against Hannah. You remember uh, the man Elkanah had two wives. One was Hannah. She had no children. The other was Panina. And Panina therefore like to provoke Hannah to rub it in that she had children from him and, 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 she, and Hannah didn't, so she provoked her. It's the same idea of that word, provoking, a purposeful, irritating, and trying to stir up anger in response, and that's what God says Jeroboam has done. And he says, you've cast me behind your back. It's been a complete rejection of God by Jeroboam. So he is then going to Tell us what the results are. Look at 10 through 14. It says, Therefore, behold, I am bringing calamity on the house of Jeroboam, and will cut off from Jeroboam every male person, both bond and free in Israel, and I will make a clean sweep of the house of Jeroboam as one sweeps away dung until it is all gone. Anyone belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city, the dogs will eat, and all... And he who dies in the field, the birds of the heavens will eat, for the Lord has spoken it. Now you arise, go to your house. When your feet enter the city, the child will die. All Israel shall mourn for him and bury him, for he alone of Jeroboam's family will come to the grave, because in him something good was found toward the Lord God of Israel in the house of Jeroboam. Moreover, the Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel who will cut off the house of Jeroboam this day and from now on. So notice we have a pronouncement of judgment on Jeroboam's house. Verses 10 and 11, he says, all males will be cut off. So in other words, there's not going to be a king eventually. He's going to wipe out all the men so that there will not be a king he says they will be swept away like dung. In, in other words, there's going to be a complete and thorough removal of Jeroboam's household. And they're going to have ugly, uh, non-standard deaths and, and no burials, therefore. He says in the city, the dogs will eat those that die. In the country, the birds will eat them. It was a real shame in their day to not have a proper burial. And that's what God says is going to happen to Jeroboam's descendants. And he says, this child about which they have come to ask is going to die. And the reasoning here is interesting. Why is this child going to die? Because in this child alone, in the whole house of Jeroboam, 
was found something good. So God says he's going to die young. He's going to die early. And this, in a way, is a blessing for this child to escape the judgment that's coming on the house of Jeroboam. He is the exception in the household of Jeroboam. And he says there's going to be a ceasing of the dynasty. He's going to raise up a new king over Israel who will cut them off. But I want you to notice also he doesn't stop with Jeroboam. He doesn't just pronounce judgment on Jeroboam. Verse 15 and 16, he also pronounces judgment on Israel. It says, For the Lord will strike Israel as a reed is shaken in the water, and he will uproot Israel from this good land which he gave to their fathers, and will scatter them beyond the Euphrates River, because they have made their Asherim provoking the Lord to anger. He will give up Israel on account of the sins of Jeroboam which he committed, and with which he made Israel to sin. I think there's an important principle we take away from this. God holds leaders accountable. There's a very harsh judgment on Jeroboam for the wickedness that he's committed. But notice also the people who have participated in the sin are not innocent of it either. God's judging both the leader and the people participating in the sin. And God is saying there's going to be a judgment on Israel. They're going to be politically unstable. That's the idea of them being struck there in 15. There's going to be political instability. For the next 200 years before they go into captivity, there's going to be turnover of kings. There's going to be political instability in the northern kingdom. He's going to eventually uproot them and scatter them. This is the land that he has given to Israel, and yet because of their disobedience, they're going to be scattered throughout the nations because of their disobedience. And because he says they have worshipped falsely, they have forsaken him, they made Asherah poles to, to have false worship. They've rejected the Lord and they've followed in the sins of Jeroboam. So essentially we have in this prophecy a very harsh message indeed. Basically there are three categories which God says are going to happen. There's going to be the death of his son. His child about whom he's concerned is going to die and that's going to happen immediately when she returns. We also see there's going to be a destruction of his house. His dynasty will be wiped out. And we also see, thirdly, that there's going to be a dispersing of the nation. So let's look quickly. We have just a few minutes left this morning and see how this death, as prophesied, does come to pass. Verse 17 and 18, it says, Then Jeroboam's wife arose, departed, and came to Terzah, and she was entering the threshold of the house. As she was entering the threshold of the house, the child died. So we have death on arrival here. Death on arrival. As she entered the house, the child died. Verse 18. All Israel buried him and mourned for him according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke through his servant Ahijah the prophet. So we have Israel responding by displaying sorrow for this child. Again, as God said, this is the only one in the house of Jeroboam that has anything good about him. So Israel will mourn for him. All of this is done as the Lord had said. God said this would happen, and this is what happens. And if you know much about God from the scriptures, one of the things that we understand about God is that he is long-suffering, isn't he? We see repeatedly throughout the scriptures how people do wrong, and 
and they are allowed to continue for a long, long time without judgment. And in some cases, that judgment comes in the afterlife. God is very long-suffering. So to see God act quickly here is very significant to understand how seriously this sin is that Jeroboam has committed. God is judging him and judging him quickly. So there is one part of the prophecy done now. So one is done already. And the rest of it is coming. So notice with me in verses 19 to 20, and this is where we'll finish this morning. In 19 to 20, we see the beginning of the dissolving of the dynasty, which is the second part of the prophecy. Two of three is beginning to take place. In verse 19, it says, Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam, how he made war and how he reigned, behold, they are written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel, the time that Jeroboam reigned was 22 years, and he slept with his fathers, and Nadab, his son, reigned in his place. Often throughout the book of Kings, we see these kinds of statements at the end of the reign or the end of the life of a king. It basically says, hey, there's records that have been kept by the kingdom, and in those records you'll find additional things. Uh, like in this case, it says how he made war, how he reigned, they're written in those things. And then he slept with his fathers or whatever. Um, a common formula that we see throughout the book of Kings. I think there's a couple things we take away from that. Number one, the prophet or the, the writer of scripture here has made his point about Jeroboam. His point isn't about how he reigned or how he fought. His point about Jeroboam has been how he worshipped. It's instructive for us to think about what the priorities of life are. The focus, even though he's a king and he has to do administrative things, he has to lead the country, he has to make decisions, he has to fight in wars, he has to protect the country. The focus of God is upon his relationship with God and how he's affected worship in Israel. That's been the priority. I think we also see here the beginning of the dissolving of the dynasty. Uh, it is a focus upon the fulfillment of the prophecy of judgment that's been made. This is the second part of it, and we're going to see it wrapped up, actually, in chapter 15. One chapter later, we're going to see the resolution of step number two. That leaves then just step number three, which is the dispersing of the nation of Israel. If you understand your history, it was about 722 B.C. that the Assyrians came in and took over Israel, the northern kingdom, and essentially took them captive and basically divided them up and dispersed them all over as God warned would happen. So this last part of the judgment, this being in the middle to, to late part of the 900s, is about 200 years later before that's going to eventually be wrapped up and that prophecy be fulfilled. So we see here that Jeroboam has rejected the Lord and led people in Israel to do the same, and God just judged him harshly and quickly for his sin an uncharacteristic way that god handles judgment many times this was very swift showing the severity of it and yet there was a judgment lingering for the rest of the nation it would go on for nearly 200 years in their rebellion against the lord and throughout the rest of the book we see kings come and go and they do wicked things too but it's about 200 years that this judgment hangs over 
And I just want to draw your attention. I know it's Christmas time. We're thinking about celebrating, rejoicing, and we're going to do those things. But it's also important for us to think about the judgment of God that hangs over those who don't know Christ. Part of the reason why the Christmas celebration is so exciting is because all of us, because of our sin, are guilty before God and deserve his judgment and eternal punishment. So we have great joy in the provision of Christ because we have a way to escape that. But there are many people that have not escaped that judgment yet. Perhaps there's even someone here who hasn't escaped that judgment yet. Though the judgment of God may linger, it is coming. And we need to be prepared. We need to trust Christ. We need to turn from our sin and trust in Christ. If that's you, escape while there's still time. Don't be like Jeroboam and harden your heart against the warnings and the message. Turn to Christ and trust him. Or perhaps... We have people that we need to be praying for diligently that they would turn from their sin and trust in Christ because they are going to undergo harsh judgment if they don't turn from their sin. We either need to be sure that we turn or if we have already turned to Christ in faith, we need to be praying for those still under the judgment of God. John tells us that those who have not believed in Christ are under condemnation now. We need to pray that they'll repent. We need to be willing to be used by God to share the message, also that they will be challenged to turn from their sin and trust in Christ. But if you haven't escaped yet, understand judgment is coming, time is short, you need to turn to Christ and trust him. If you have, pray diligently and share the message diligently with those who still need to hear it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given us your word. You reveal truth to us so that we may understand. We want life, Father. I'm confessing my own attitude, as you know very well. My, my attitude is I want life to be wonderful and easy and joyous all the time. And we can have joy in Christ all the time. But life is full of hard things, and there are serious consequences for sin and you are going to bring judgment and that's a scary thing but father we thank you that you reveal that to us so that we can turn to christ and trust in him and escape that judgment because he's died for us and father there's many others in our lives as well that need you father we we can't make anyone trust you and and sometimes that's frustrating and discouraging but Father, we, we sometimes are too silent. Help us to tell people about the forgiveness in Christ and what Christmas really means. Father, help us to have those opportunities this year. Help us to take those opportunities when they're there. And Father, we pray that you would help us to be diligent and faithful to seek you on a daily basis, praying for the lost, and being careful to be sensitive to your word that we too won't turn away from you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name.